it's just really disgusting and you just wish that it would stop because they don't and you feel so weak and scared you feel like there's nothing you can do about it you think it can't be that bad because they're an adult and you trust them hello and welcome to the on the edge with andrew gold podcast i'm your host andrew gold that was a very professional sounding setup for a podcast wasn't it i said the name of the thing it had my name in it and then i said my name again to say that i was the host of the thing welcome to another show today i've got Lacey jones on the podcast i've been meaning to get her on for quite some time she's been away and she's back and she's brilliant and I've been talking back and forward with her for a long time. She's a former Jehovah's Witness with a fascinating story to tell, a lot of anger, rightfully so, uh, about the Jehovah's Witness church. She is a defector herself. Her mother remains in the church. But some of the things that happened to her when she was a 12-year-old girl should never happen to anyone ever. They are awful and she is extremely courageous and open and eloquent in discussing uh, exactly what did happen. We're going to talk first about the Jehovah's Witness Church to give people a a reminder of what it's all about, um, as well as to those who are ex-JWs or J-dubs, as, as one calls them sometimes. I think they like to sometimes you know, have this said and to hear it said about who and what they are, whether they're a cult or a religion. And then we get on to what happened when a man called Cliff entered... The life of Lacey Jones because things really got ugly very fast and she is brilliant for talking about it and I think it's going to help a lot of people listening to her story. Make sure to follow her on Instagram on Kingdom Trauma where she shares bits and pieces about her story, some really interesting stuff there. That's Kingdom Trauma on Instagram. Lots of big episodes coming out. If you want to get the Saturday episodes, make sure to sign up on patreon.com slash Gold or apple subscribers or just go on youtube you often get those ones the video versions as well we're getting towards two hundred thousand subscribers there so do come hang out and and be in the live chats and all those kinds of things with me if you would like but now you're on the edge of the extraordinary abuse that happened in this particular jehovah's witness family and according to many throughout the jehovah's witness cult or religion or community or whatever it might be with Lacey Jones. Hello, welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. So, a former Jehovah's Witness, Lacey Jones is a survivor of religious trauma and and CA, we'll call it, just for the, the YouTube thing. I've watched her speak a lot online, and she's a wonderful, eloquent, and courageous speaker, so I'm honoured to have her on the show. We've been meaning to do this for ages. So, uh, Lacey, obviously I've interviewed Harrison Cother and the controversial Lloyd Evans a long time ago, but remind me a bit about what Jehovah's Witnesses, just for those who don't know at all, what they um, actually are and what they believe. So, Jehovah's Witnesses branch off of Christianity as a different group um, and they differ from mainstream Christianity in the sense that they don't follow the Trinity uh, they don't attend a church, they attend a kingdom hall, they don't have priests, they have um, what you call elders, um, and it's sort of run by men. Um, I wouldn't refer to Jehovah's Witnesses as a religion, I would refer to it as a cult. It has a lot of cult-like tendencies, lots of manipulation involved in there as well, but just for sort of general public answer of Jehovah's Witnesses is just they're a, they're a sort of a, a sect of Christianity that believe 
Armageddon will come where God will step in and wipe out all the evil and wicked people on the earth. And then we get to, if you survive that, you get to live on earth and restore it back to a paradise and live forever upon it. Are those things that you recall as a child really believing in? Yes. So, I mean, my faith and my beliefs in the organisation growing up were were very strong, I would say. Um, But there's always a part of you that feels it seems sort of far-fetched. You know, uh, we can't, the human mind can't comprehend living forever and what we're going to do forever and what's going to happen at Armageddon. And it was more so fear of whether you were going to survive. There was a lot of pressure on if you if you sin um, or you don't really follow the, the unwritten rules of the organisation that you could get into trouble. Um, but yeah, I did believe that Armageddon was going to come and that I would live forever, hopefully. <laughs> Probably not, but would have lived forever. Yeah, I can see how that's quite nice, the idea of living forever. But then there's a lot of scary stuff, isn't there? Because I've seen some of the books that they have, that they put out every now and then, and it's, it's sort of kids holding hands with family members and stuff and walking into this sort of white light and things like that. But it's quite scary, isn't it? And what, what does this apocalypse look like for everyone? So the, over time, the organisation have changed how they explain who's going to survive Armageddon. So usually from growing up, I remember, or maybe it was how I interpreted it being young, um, was that it was going to be the only the witnesses that survived because they were the true believers in God and true lovers of God and the true religion. Um, and then it sort of turned into those with a good heart condition. So when it came to Armageddon, it was going to be this absolutely frightening apocalyptic um the sky will go dark and um you won't see the sun for days and um that the governments will turn on god's people so then will be hunted down almost by the authorities to be imprisoned um they sort of taught you that one of the signs of armageddon would be that the governments would ban all religion. And then because we would stick to being Jehovah's Witnesses, we would be targeted. Um, but we couldn't break our faith. We had to remain being witnesses. And then it was all these horrific natural disasters and all this slaughtering, basically, and the heavens open and you see Jesus on the clouds and all these sorts of things um, where everyone just dies and the scriptures are read of where the birds will peck the flesh off of those that have died, um, which was always really horrible as a child to sort of think about that. And they would say um, people will be screaming and there'll be nothing we can do for them because we used to preach to them and they didn't listen to us when we preached, so we can't help them. So we're probably going to hear everybody scream and there's nothing we can do about it. Oh my! That's there was a film I saw last year called The Lighthouse that ends. Uh, it's not a spoiler because it's such a weird film, but it ends with that sort of pecking of with a bird, um, and it must have come from that or from some sort of Greek mythology or something as well. It's quite a common thought, because I, I guess, to keep people in line. And and that's the point, isn't it? You say it's a cult, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and I think it does sound like it is. And it's one of those weird ones where it it's also a religion, because some of the cults like Scientology and Nixium, they don't even sort of pretend to be a religion. I know Scientology has the whole folklore about uh, Lord Zenu. And then you've got some extreme forms of, of older religions like um, Hasidic Judaism and Jehovah's Witnesses, where people are like, oh, that's a bit. So in terms of 
what you what you were talking about, I guess there's isolation and non-believers. These are the non-believers, the worldly people, aren't they? So uh, that's quite common in cults. Another common thing in cults is finding ways to extract money to so so that you can access higher tiers. Does that happen in Jehovah's Witnesses as well? Not necessarily. Um, the thing with money for them, so they do have donation boxes when you enter a kingdom hall, um, but it's nothing that's sort of forcibly passed round the congregation during a meeting is, is what they're called when you attend a kingdom hall. Um, but they, they used to have this like financial report that was read, I think, once a month and it'll tell you how, mu how much money like the congregation had and what your expenditures were and whether you're over or under. And then they would sort of say, um, you know, try and donate if you can because we're, we're below what, what we should be. Um, but if you can't, don't worry. But there always was a bit of pressure that, that you should. And there's even like cartoons now for children. They created a series called Caleb and Sophia, which are these animated characters. And it's all teaching Bible principles to children. And one of them is encouraging children to save their ice cream money and donate it to the the kingdom halls instead. So it, it's sort of more grabbing the money and they accept money in ways of like stocks and shares as well. So on the website, that's also how you can donate or you can leave to them in your will and all these other things. So that they definitely sort of take money, but there's no, um, you know, you don't get a higher position within within the organisation or anything. If you've donated a lot of money, you've just donated a lot of money and that makes you a good brother or sister and Jehovah will bless you for, for doing that. Okay, so it's the sort of emotional pull and push and the cartoon thing, the way they get their kids, which all authoritarian, extreme authoritarian sects do. They go for the, the children and try to convince them first and sometimes turn them against their parents. Yes. So, uh, it's it's a, a lot of my subscribers and viewers are ex-JWs or ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, and they often speak of being survivors or having you know escaped it. So, what what does that actually mean? What have they often? And I know we're going to talk about your own harrowing story. What have they often escaped and survived? So, the, I think. Saying the word es escape is most commonly used amongst those that have left is because once you're in it and you sort of wake up, if you like, that it isn't the true religion, it's not the truth and you, and you don't believe in it anymore, you feel you can't leave because usually when you've gotten to that point, um, you'll be baptised by then. There's a big push when you're growing up in the organisation that you need to dedicate your life. And it's more so to the organisation than it is to God. But anyway, that's one reason it's a cult. But, um, but by the time you're baptised, then you sort of come under, um, what would be the word? Consequences. You come under some consequences for any actions um, so if you have premarital sex, if you're doing drugs, if you drink too much, if you got caught smoking, if you're dating somebody um, that's not in the organisation or you're dating somebody and you don't have a chaperone with you. So all these little sins, um, anything like this that you do, any, any mistakes, if you like, that you make uh, can lead you to be excommunicated from the organisation and, and they call it disfellowshipping. Um, which is basically a committee of elders will meet and decide whether to chuck you out of the congregation and nobody can speak to you again or whether you're repentant of your sins and, and then you're allowed to stay. 
Um, but this is a big fear tactic amongst the members because you then feel trapped if you want to, to leave and, and lead a life that isn't in accordance with Jehovah and the organisation and their principles, then you'll have no more contact with your family and friends because you will be disfellowshipped. Um, so that is why I would say ex escape is used sometimes um, because you just feel you can't get out. And if you do get out, there's going to be very severe consequences emotionally for you. It's quite traumatic. Um, and there's a lot of instances, unfortunately, and, I, and I'm aware it's in other religious organisations and it, it's outside of religion and in every organisation it happens everywhere else. But paedophilia is very big within Jehovah's Witnesses. And I've found through my own experience and, and hearing other people's experiences that they're also escaping from that as well, where the organisation is more so supported and a, a child abuser than, or any abuser really over the survivor of the abuse. And again, that's another reason people feel the need to escape. And that, we're going to get on to, to that because it's so in, in line with your experience as, as well, what was happening to you. Uh, but just, I wanted to make a note about that disfellowshipping. Um, I recently had Nemo the Mormon, which are going to, he, he's, he's brilliant. He's from another religion slash cults, depending on your point of view, Mormonism. Uh, and he talked about that. And it, it really hit home to me because obviously on this side of the fence where I am, having not been in a, a cult as such, uh, but having investigated them, it's like, oh, let's get people out. Let's get them out all the time. But it sort of has to happen at their own pace and they have to decide to leave. And it's still incredibly difficult. But when they decide and come in and say like, no, you're out, you're like, that's like the worst thing that can happen to you. Did, did you, do you feel that as well? I feel it's it's inhumane to disfellowship. Um, I mean, for me, I mean, it's not the only way out. Uh, when I left the organisation on, on what's known as a fader, so I faded out of the organisation. I sort of just stopped going to the meetings and stopped communicating. So then I, I sort of wasn't touched by the organisation of I'm going to get disfellowshipped. I've had experience with disfellowshipping. Uh, my, my dad was disfellowshipped. Um, I was very young when he was disfellowshipped. So um, him and my mum separated, they got divorced. Um, when they got divorced, I think I was about three or four years old and, and he was disfellowshipped. And I was allowed to see him at the weekends, uh, not for very long. Um, then it ended up just being on a Saturday for four hours. And when I got to sort of, um, I think it was around, around about 11, I stopped seeing him because there was an article in the Watchtower, which is their literature. You read sort of a question and answer Bible based discussion on a Sunday. And it was all about associating with those that are disfellowshipped. And it sort of pricked my conscience and I was getting a lot of pressure to, to work towards baptism. And I wasn't allowed to get baptized if I was having to do with my dad. Um, which led to me not speaking to him for 11 years. And that's how serious disfellowshipping it is. It, it does just tear families apart. And those that are in it, they don't realise the emotional trauma it causes to those that have been because they think they're doing the right thing because that's what they're told. It protects the congregation. It's to encourage those ones to come back, which a lot of times that is people will leave and they'll only come back just for the sake of having their family and friends and then they're trapped because they don't want to lose them. So I lost 11 years with my dad. Um, my brother was also disfellowshipped for, for six months and that was really difficult. He just had um, 
found out about his daughter who was quite young at the time, um, not even in double figures yet. And it was very difficult to have him pull up outside the house, let her come inside and sit and wait. And we couldn't go out and see him and then would have to send her back out to the car. And it's just, it's really uh, inhumane for the person that has been disfellowshipped. And it's very conflicting for those that are in and it causes a lot of emotional then problems for those that are doing it as well because it's they want to but they can't or it's a very complicated and a very sick thing that happens but unfortunately the members don't know any better and the ones that are disfellowshipped can't do anything about it. It really is. Um, it's it's an awful thing to happen to a family and I guess you had to grow up fast in a sense I mean or, or at least you had a very difficult set of early years being away from your father, separated from your father. And then there was this ominous, I suppose, presence in your life in the form of somebody called Cliff. Tell me, about how did Cliff come into your life? So Cliff had actually been sort of in in our family's life, I guess, before I came on the scene. Um, He was actually, I think he attended my mom and dad's wedding when, when they got married. So he was a known figure to the family. He was known around the congregations and he was known around most of uh, England. If we travelled to any Kingdom Hall, um, most people would know him or most people have heard of him. And he was almost to a degree a celebrity within the the organisation. Sometimes brothers would get sent to different Kingdom Halls to give talks and things and everyone used to always be excited because Cliff was coming. So how he came into our family, uh, he pursued my my mum not long after uh, my mum and dad got divorced and um, they got married and he became my stepdad. And um, he was known as a very, a very spiritual man. And as I've said before about him, he was very pious. It was like he was filled with Holy Spirit and it was almost like he could do no wrong. And he, he always had answers from the Bible and he, he, he loved Jehovah and he loved the organization and he was always wanting to encourage everybody spiritually. So he was this well loved figure, um, who then came in, into our family when I was about six or seven years old. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. 
Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. It's it's always the way, isn't it, that these people are just like the people who are just they do the most horrible things are the most pious and righteous. I think in life it doesn't even have to necessarily be religion. It's just people going around telling everyone how wonderful they are and these are the things I believe and so on. And then they go on to these this awful stuff. How did your dad, I guess you weren't speaking to him at the time, but do you know how he responded to the idea that this guy that he knew had just sort of muscled in on his family? Dad wasn't happy about it. Um, I mean, he thought it was quite quick anyway, and he wasn't keen on, on it happening. But he said if it was going to happen, he was glad that it was him because he knew him and he knew that he would look after us or so he thought he would look after us. And, you know, he was this spiritual man that, that everybody loved and knew. So he's like, if she was going to marry anybody, he was glad it was him. So it was almost a, a bit of relief of, okay, at least it was Cliff. And and then how wrong everybody was. Oh, what well, it's just so sad. And I mean, give us a sense of Cliff's physical stature and age at that time. So... Cliff was six foot or just over six foot, um, quite a big build. His, his hands, he couldn't bend his, his, sorry, he couldn't straighten his fingers. His hands were almost like claws. They were like this. Um, and he had like sort of very, very strong. Um, he was covered in tattoos um, from prison, most of them, or yeah, nearly all of them were done in prison. He had a few stints in prison before he found God. Um, for, for theft and, and drugs and, and these sorts of things, which was why he was so well respected within the organisation because of how he turned his life around and, you know, loved, loved God. Um, so he was, for his age as well, he was in his, well, he would have been in his 60s at the time. He's now in his late 70s. Um, so yeah, he would have been in his 60s at the time of coming into the family. And and but I get the impression as well that even I mean this is a frightening image for a young girl but he was quite sort of before he had done anything to you was he quite sort of friendly and, and nice and fun around the house? We had no problems with him for the first few years and even my one of my older sisters used to refer to him as dad and me and the sister above me she's only three years older and we didn't really have any other sort of father figure because dad left very young and I stopped seeing him at a young age as well and I could only see him for a few hours so Cliff was our dad he was our, our father figure in our life and we loved him and he looked after us and 
he was fun and he took us on holiday abroad for the first time and you know I still remember my sister like screaming when the plane took off and it it was it was nice um until it wasn't and that was probably until I, I again I turned around 11 12 and then it, it all sort of sort of changed but I guess if you look back on those years from when they got married of me being six or seven then there would have been definite grooming throughout those years that I wouldn't have recognized so you can look back with rose-tinted glasses and say oh yeah but this was great and this was great but actually what was slowly happening was that he was isolating me from the rest of my family so that he could groom me to then abuse me when I turned an age that he so desired that's that's is is that what you think he was doing then for, for for years when you look back at those memories and and was he doing that to your sisters separately as well so i how i view it i think he actually singled my mom out because she had children um knowing what we know now about him because like i say me and the sister above me were quite young so again we were probably easily manipulated um the other siblings were well into their teenagers, nearly their 20s. So they were completely written off as him being able to do anything too because he's not interested in adults. Um, and the sister above me, she had a very close relationship with my mom. So she had some learning um, difficulties at school and these sorts of things. So she had a lot of my mom's attention. And therefore, I didn't have much attention because I was fine at school and it was, oh, Lacey can handle it. She can handle herself. She's fine. So because they had that connection, I think he wasn't able to do anything to her because she would have spoken out to mom. So it was easier to sort of keep me to one side and almost turn us against each other. So growing up, it was always my mom and that sister versus me and Cliff. And then the other siblings all moved out and it was ma- it was mainly just the four of us. So he, he just made it as though it was me and him against everybody else in the rest of the world. It's almost like he learned the blueprint from the cult of Jehovah's Witness or whatever else and then used it on, in the family dynamic. It's, it's, it's really abhorrent. Can you take us through that, that first time? And, and was that first time, is, in your memory, is it sort of, almost like a before that and after that moment because because everything changed so much. Yeah, it was, this is where it gets difficult for me with sort of trying, you know, is, is that the before and after moment? But Well, it is, but there was sort of the, the before, there was the after, but the after was almost this limbo effect for over 10 years. It, 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 was, it was very difficult. So to start at the beginning, um, I usually, I mean, most people that, that know, me or have listened to my story will, will know what I'm going to say. I think people probably know by heart, but um, it was, it happened at a, a hotel actually. His daughter was having a ball um, and uh, we were invited and we got to stay at a hotel. And uh, the room that we stayed in was like a masonette. And me and my sister had the downstairs part and my mom and Cliff had the upstairs and I mean that's always exciting as a child that there's an upstairs to, to sleep on and it wasn't abnormal in our family to to sleep in bed together for like a nap or have a cuddle and I know people before in previous interviews have commented on that and basically if you are going to just don't because that was normal in our family that was how we showed love that was we always loved to cuddle with mom it just felt safe and secure and we had to have a nap before the party and I was too excited to sleep. I wanted to stay with them. So I got in bed with them um, and it was mum, 
cliff in the middle and I slept next to cliff because I had no reason not to. I never had an issue with it before. Um, and that was the first time that he started the abuse. I don't I don't think that's un, unusual to cuddle your family. I think that's very nice and affectionate. I'm surprised people have commented on that. Um, particularly, I don't know, people comment about the British culture not being that uh, intimate and not that warm. And I think, well, actually, a lot of us are and we are very cuddly. Yeah kinds of people and and at that point from what you've told me cliff was a, a bit of a father figure almost a father to to many of you as well so why wouldn't you be in bed and having you know you don't know about all this stuff that's actually going through no. his head and then so he just started i mean because i mean how much are you comfortable talking about what he actually did so to start with, I mean, I was where I went to bed in the dress I was going to wear to the party because I was so excited and I didn't want to sleep. I just put the dress on and waited basically for them to have their nap because I was like, yay. Um, so I had like uh, this dress on. So it was very, and obviously at that age, I didn't really need to wear a bra because there wasn't really much to put in a bra and anyway. So it was very easy for him to have access to my chest which was the first thing that he did. He put his hand down the top of the dress. And I I sort of remember like freezing and I didn't know what to do because it, it's almost like you, you know what's happening isn't right, but because it's not right, it scares you. So then I was too scared. I was just scared. I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't want to speak. He wasn't saying anything. And this is like your dad and, and mom's right there. And he's doing this when, when mom's right there. So th this must be okay that, he, that he's doing this because, and all these sort of things uh, is what, as a child, you, you just don't know. You're just scared. And when he stopped that, he then sort of took his hand out and then he put his hand like up the dress and under like the underwear. And, and that's, yeah. That's probably about as much as I can say without crying. <laughs> That's okay. That's I and and, th and thank you for being so you know open and, and courageous enough to speak about this. Um, did, did you know at that time about like I guess they were called back then like dirty old men? You know. Um, I guess I was aware. I mean, my mom, whenever there was anything on the news um, or anything about paedophilia or any of anyone touching children and, and mum would sit there and she would she used to say if anybody touched you I'll kill them and if anybody touched you I'll chop it off and and I guess that more so happened after because I remember sitting next to her and being really tense and being like yeah but it's happened but it's happened <laughs> but I couldn't do anything so I, I, I was aware but after that first instance um it, I didn't see at the time thinking about it as child abuse. I didn't really know what it was. I just knew it was wrong and I wanted to forget that it happened. Um, and after that, when we went down to the party, he sort of grabbed my arm and he said he was sorry. And I sort of just like pulled my arm away and, and that was it. And I hope that was it and that, okay, I don't know what that was, but you know, maybe he'll stop. And unfortunately he didn't. When he said sorry, and, and I guess we can only speculate on this, I mean, is Cliff in your mind, are we talking about a psychopath who has no emotion, no empathy, doesn't care what he was doing? Or are we talking about an extremely troubled and torn character who knew it was wrong and felt bad and said sorry? What do you think that sorry was about? I think I think because it was something that he'd finally, he's finally started what he clearly wanted to start. And I, I don't think he has any remorse for what he's done. I mean, as we talk about, um, in a little bit later on about, um, sort of when, when he, when it all came out. 
um, the only thing he said to the elders was that he was sorry for the reproach that he brought on God's name. And they wrote that down in their notes of that meeting. And there was no, I'm sorry, I've done it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for, for hurting. Like there, there was, there was none of that. He was only sorry for the damage on the organization that would come from it. So in that moment of him saying sorry, then I think maybe it was again, like it's speculation, but maybe just a, a premonition of things to come. Like, sorry, but I'm sorry it's happened, but it's going to keep happening. Oh. That is dis- what a disgusting person. And you're absolutely right. We will get into, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witness role in this or their lack of any sort of help and those things and where their responsibility lies. So so things continued for an initial time with Cliff or for how, how long did he keep doing that? So it's hard for me to remember exactly the time frame. I'd say it was... It was um it could have been a few months, it could have been a year uh, or just over a year. It was definitely not more than two years though. So it was, I think, over probably about a year period. And I asked this not in a sort of victim blaming way, but actually just to, to understand and explain what stops a child at that point from from shouting out. And, and I'm also confused as because I know, I know he did this in front of your family a lot of the time. Like, How did he have the confidence that you wouldn't? So... Again, it goes back to the the um, sort of growing up and being groomed to keep separate from my family. So my oldest sister left the organisation at quite a young age and my brother had left but recently come back in and my other sister <laughs> um, also had left when she was about 14 years old. So then they're seen as bad association and they're worldly people. So he sort of complained anytime I wanted to see them. It was, you can't. Um, because they're bad association, they'll force you away from Jehovah. Um, so one of his ways of managing that was making sure I didn't really have many people to associate with so that there wasn't potential for it to come out. Um, besides that, it was, it was, I think he never spoke. There was only that first time he said sorry and the last time he did anything um, with regards to like penetration was the last time that he spoke. So he never spoke about it, which left me in a very weird place of, I don't understand why he's doing it. He's, he's not saying anything. I don't understand what's going on. And the other part of it was because my mom had obviously had a sort of difficult marriage with, with my dad and my dad had committed adultery and mom was very hurt. Um, and we saw the damage that had happened to her because of, of this and the divorce. And then and then she met Cliff and then it was like, okay, this will be better for her. So the other part of me being silent was, I don't want to hurt my mom because she's been hurt enough by her previous marriage. Um, and I don't want to be a reason that she's going to be hurt now. So it's easy to stay quiet so that, that she wouldn't be upset. Um, and then I guess the final thing, like I say, the last time we did anything with regards to, to penetration, I guess because maybe I was getting sort of like I say about 12 as you get more to teenagers you're probably more likely going to be like right you need to stop because I'm aware that what you're doing is you know you, you tend to have more of a voice um and you learn more things at school and he'd asked me if it hurt whilst he was sort of there so we'll say like digital penetration and I started crying and I said yes and he um he stopped and was like, okay, and made made me sit up. And he was like, we're, we're going to pray to Jehovah now about this. And um, 
he started the prayer and he sort of was like, you know, dear Jehovah God, we, we come before you now because we've both done something wrong. And then that was like the final, oh my God, I can never talk about it ever because God's angry at me and I've done something horrible and I can never tell anybody because everyone's going to hate me because I've done something so disgusting. And and that sort of sealed the, the silence, basically. He was like really tactical about it. He knew that doing that prayer would, would make you stay quiet, right? Yeah. He put a lot of pressure on me with regards to the organisation and being a good witness and, and getting baptised and what you're going to do after you're back. And it was sort of like, oh, no, like it was just fear. And especially because of those that are going to die at Armageddon if he's praying that we've done something. And because he was an elder and he, he was an elder for like over 40 years. And because he was still in that position as an elder, I sort of was like, well, it, it, it must be fine with God what he's done because he's still in that position. Um, but even though the sort of penetration had stopped, I still had to fight him off me every day up until 2019 because he would still try and grope my chest. And that was really difficult. It was like I say, he was quite a big man. Um, but to go back to his, how he got away with it, he used to poke me and my sisters and my brother and he used to dig us in our ribs. And uh, we used to always like yelp and oh, get off and, and push him away and get off cliff and whatever. So we knew he did that, which meant if any family was in the house and he wanted to have a grope and I was saying, get off. Like my brother, when he, when he found out, he, he cried because he said, I've heard you tell him to get off you. But they just assumed it was him doing his usual digging us in the ribs. So that was something else that he was sort of very manipulative with. Bastard. I just, I'm angry just hearing this. In 2019, it's only a few years ago. So, I mean, I, I would have thought as well, if he might have had inclinations towards children, that was, was there any sense that he was less uh, pushy or, or less interested or whatever as you became an adult? Well, like I say, it was it was only that groping. So when I was a child, um, besides sort of the, the penetration, there was a lot of him trying, like kissing me, and me just sat there crying because I couldn't fight him off. I was like too, I didn't wasn't as strong at sort of eleven, twelve as you are when you sort of get more to sixteen, seventeen. Um, so that was when I was a child, um, and and those sorts of things. But sort of, I I don't know what it was with him, but obviously there's. there's there's not much he could do more than that. One, because I was older and, you know, I'm more susceptible to talking. Whereas if he does something more serious as I'm getting older, I, I don't really understand his, his logic behind it. But that was sort of the only thing that he did. He used to always sort of stare at me or tell me, um, talk about my body and you're so gorgeous and you've got a lovely figure and you're so sexy and all these sorts of things. And I used to hate having to go downstairs because I knew if he was in the kitchen and I wanted to go in the kitchen that I'd have to, you know, you have to push him off. And he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't stop even though you're pushing him off until he's had a grab. And it was just, it was just horrible. Yeah, I can I just can't even imagine how horrible that was. And he would he would kiss you uh, as you mentioned. He would kiss you on the mouth, and I, I believe he would use tongue. And I can imagine that that is almost worse, or at least awful in a slightly different way to the touching, because it's part of a grown man's fantasy to be extremely intimate with a with a child. What does it feel like? And I think this is important for several reasons. One of which being that I know 
percentage-wise, that some of these kinds of men might be watching this video and telling themselves, oh, it's all right, it doesn't really bother the child. Take us inside the headspace of a 12-year-old child, you know, what that feels like when he's kissing and doing all those that horrible stuff. It feels just, it's just really disgusting. And you just wish that it would stop. And um, because they don't, and you feel so weak or and, and scared, and like, and you feel like there's nothing you can do about it. Because when you're a child, it's the adult that's right. So even though they're doing something wrong, you think it can't be that bad because they're an adult, and I, you trust them. And I trusted him because he, like I say, he was like my dad. So he, he, it must be. Uh, normal's not the right word but you just sort of tell yourself these things uh, and the main thing is you just want it to stop and the amount of times I sort of prayed and, and spoke to, to God to, to please make him stop and you know you sort of I think there was a lot of suppression because I couldn't talk about it and I suppressed it for, for like 10 years and you sort of have to try and convince yourself it, it's it's something that um it was something that, that that it wasn't because it just becomes easier to deal with and you try and forget it and you suppress it so much that these things, you know, you don't think about. It's only as you get older and you then have to deal with, with the trauma and, and the flashbacks. And then it, it wasn't that long ago I had a bit of a breakdown about the kissing because you think about it and you go, oh my God, my first kiss was with my dad. Oh man, I'm so sorry you went through that, Lacey. What, this... this absolute bastard and that's why I, I it's really important i i think that you answer and that you're so brave to come out and speak about this because you could easily have just said right i've had my experience i don't need to talk about it but it's going to help so many people going through what you've been through plus as i say i mean i've interviewed a lot of these people with that inclination who are not necessarily they don't think of themselves as bad people but who do tell themselves oh it's not so bad the greeks did it and oh it's just because society tells them it's wrong that's why they think it's wrong and that hurts them more but you thought society was telling you it was right because he was an older man he was an elder he was telling you this is right and fine and you st it still felt awful to you so if ever there was proof needed that these people should never be touching children that was it right yeah and it's the i think it's it's very sick to have any inclination towards children because you know children are innocent and when you do things like that, Cliff stole my childhood from me, from what he's done. And anybody with those inclinations and they act on them, you are stealing someone's childhood. And then in adulthood, you are leaving us with the trauma that we will never recover from, but you learn to live with and it gets easier to deal with. But we will still always forever go back to that place and it can come, you can be triggered, uh, but you know your triggers or sometimes you don't and you just you just start and it, it, I get so angry with him and and well and any sort of paedophile but obviously because it's him I get so angry because I now have to live with this and I have to live with the memories and I have to live with the trauma and I have to live with complex PTSD and anxiety because of what he did 
So there's no, there's no, I don't understand that. I mean, I don't think many people can understand the mind of somebody that feels like it's okay. And whatever reasons they give is just a load of horseshit because it's, it's just sick. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, well put, well put. And that they make up, I think, 1% of men, which doesn't seem that high, but across like an entire country, it's, it's a lot of people. Well, one, one person with that inclination is too many people with that inclination. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And then so how, I mean, how you talk about how that's changed how you are now, how, how does that sort of raise its head? You know, are you able to form relationships with, with people as an adult now? Is that always in your mind? It was always difficult for me, um, like sort of growing up having had Cliff do this to me. And like I like I said before, we were a very cuddly family and I loved hugs with my mum. I loved them. But if I sat on the sofa next to her and I used to always curl, curl my legs up and if mum put her hand on my thigh, I would freeze. And even like my older sister, if she did it and I used to, I used to tense and I, I wouldn't be able to say anything, but I would feel sick that they were touching my leg. And, and I used to think, oh my God, oh, and it, it, it's like mom would never ever do that do that to me but it was like fear because they were sort of in that proximity and it was like oh god um I mean I'm not as bad now with with that sort of thing um but I have had a lot of counseling and I still continue to have counseling and um like I say I got diagnosed with complex PTSD so when I do get triggered by anything uh, in relation to to child abuse or even religion I suffer with a lot of religious trauma um I tend to have like a panic attack and initially when I had my panic attacks I would then be paralyzed so I would have the panic attack and then during it I would just become mute and then I wouldn't be able to move and um I would, the only thing I could move usually was my eyes and maybe my feet. So then I would be frozen in whatever position that I was during the panic attack, unable to move, unable to talk. So then I couldn't communicate with anybody what what was wrong. And then I got so upset that I had no control over my own body that I would cry. So then I sat in this state just crying um, and it could last hours. It could last minutes. It was just, it, it all depended on how bad the trigger was. And then eventually I'll be able to get movement back, but I still couldn't speak. So then I'd have to get my phone and like send messages and stuff. Like I could type or I could write, but I couldn't talk. So that it was really difficult with sort of um my boyfriend and my family if they were with me because they'll be talking to me and I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't turn my head nothing and I couldn't talk so then they wouldn't know what to do until I was able to move and then type so it was it that was really difficult as well it sounds like a nightmare that what what you go through but um and and are you, do you still have that boyfriend I don't mean to pry into your personal life just to just to see if, if you're able to get through that and, and have those kind of relationships yeah that yeah that was it's very big support very massive support in my life i mean my, most of my close family as well but yeah he was he is and continues to be like my main support in life through all of this so luckily now when i do get triggered if i start to feel a panic attack coming on i usually can stop it before it develops into the sort of hyperventilating stage. And my counselor spoke to me about like my amygdala and when it gets triggered and how to bring it down levels. Um, so I haven't had one of those paralytic ap- episodes for um, quite a few months now. 
um, usually the, if I do get triggered now, it's a, a lot of tears um, and even work. So I work at a school um, and the NSPCC have something that I think is really good, but also really horrific at the same time based on the fact that we need it. Um, and it's called Pantosaurus and it's like a dinosaur that, that sings basically about telling people uh, no if they ask to like see your underwear or to take them off. And during class one day they played it and the kids were standing up and they were sort of dancing along and singing. And I was just so, it was such a shock and I, that I just got triggered and I had to quickly leave the classroom and, and take myself away because I, you know, I don't know. And it's these sorts of things you don't have to deal with in situations you don't expect. Um, but yeah, so it's little things like that that can just send you on a spiral. Let's let's get back onto Jehovah's Witnesses then. To to what extent do you think uh, this is somehow you know even if not related necessarily to the doctrine of Jehovah's Witnesses that it was enabled? And I'm thinking just in my mind. I know there is this thing in Jehovah's Witnesses which is just so shocking, which is that something didn't happen unless two people witnessed it. Is that right? Yes. So they have a yeah. It's known as the two witness rule. Um, I mean, it does. It doesn't just go for for abuse. It's for any sin. Um, but yeah, if if more than one person hasn't been witness to it, then they say there's nothing they can do, and it's their word against the, you know it's the survivor's word against the abusers. It's crazy, isn't it? Did did that have some some impact, or do you think that has an impact in fostering these kinds of men who think they can just do whatever they want? Well, yeah, because usually it's the men that are in charge. Um, I, I, I speak out about the witnesses since leaving and I want to make it clear that, that the members that, that don't know, um, you know, I don't have any issues against them. My issues are with the leaders of the organisation. So when I was in it, I wasn't aware that the elders have a handbook that they follow called the Shepherd, the Flock of God, um, which you can get a PDF of online. And I didn't know that that existed. I didn't know they had this sort of rule book of what to follow during certain situations. And there'll be people in the congregations now that also don't know. And But when you read about what's in them and they basically have like a cheat sheet of how to get away then with everything because they know what, what the rules are. So for Cliff, he would have the rule book. He would know what the instructions would be. He knows how it's handled. So they can very much use their position very dangerously within the organisation. And that's exactly what he did. That's awful. And that's something that I'm writing this book about the psychology of secrets and a lot of it is about cults and how they how they keep secrets and how they use secrets against you and he's like an ultimate example then because he's got as you say this cheat sheet and he knows how to make sure everybody stays quiet and he gets away with things oh man so so would you say that Jehovah's Witnesses then I mean I think you have said this that it's pretty that this this goes on and is is pretty rife there yeah, so I mean, my cases, I say usually in, in most interviews, is is one of thousands and thousands and thousands, if not more. And mine is probably a, a mild case compared to what other survivors go through. Um, it's it's just disgusting. And the, the main thing that they know, so Cliff would know that if you sort of confess. Um, they're under almost like what the Catholic Church have. So the elders are under a penitent oath, really. So they can't share, which was the problem. So I didn't have the two witness rule problem because after Cliff initially denied it to the elders, the next day he then admitted that he did. But Cliff said that he'd only done it once and he was drunk, which is both a lie. Um, so, but he, he, Cliff was aware that they would be able to tell the police 
about his confession. So when the police did contact them and they said, no, we can't, like Cliff would know that. And, and the elder said, the only way we can give you the confession is if Cliff consents to it. Um, and obviously Cliff said no. So there was, they said there was nothing they could do. Um, and they weren't going to hand over the confession that they had. So Cliff had a judicial committee, as mentioned earlier, where members of the, the, uh, sorry, the elders of the congregation will meet to discuss whether they're going to disfellowship that person. So pretty quick after I spoke up about the abuse, Cliff was taken down as an elder and it was announced to the congregation that he was no longer an elder, but no reason was given why. And then it came to the judicial committee and a brother was brought in from Bethel, um, you know, sent in the big guns because it's child abuse. And um, that there really shouldn't have even been a judicial committee. I think as soon as something like that that's mentioned should be immediately red flagged and kick them out because they want to protect children. But instead they have to go through and see if he's repentant about what he's done. So they had minutes from this meeting and that's what me and my sister spent and and the police mainly the police spent seven months fighting for was to get his confession which he knew they wouldn't be able to hand over and um i asked the elders to to explain to me why that why they were not helping me why they were not giving over this confession and um again if you want to include the names dave clifford and rudy dobson these two elders that I, I loved, absolutely loved the bones of them. Um, you know, they're, they're like family. Uh, I was really close. And they, they were the two elders that, that were sort of in charge of, of this situation. And they came round to the house. And even my, my sister that's three years older than me, she was like, I also want to understand. So she, she sat in the room with me. Uh, and they read some scriptures about slander because he told them in confidence so they couldn't they couldn't go and and tell the police oh. and then the next point was that um that they would have to step down as their position so they could tell the police about what he confessed um just as an individual as a person not as an elder but they would have to not be an elder to do that and I didn't say anything because I assumed one of them would at least say, so I'll step down, but they, they just didn't look at me and stayed quiet and everybody knows the story. And I said, but he's a paedophile. And, and, and they said, yeah, we know. And that was, a, a, I think I didn't, I didn't want the organisation. I'd already spoken to the elders before saying, no, I don't want to go to meetings anymore. I, I hadn't for a while. Um, I was just going through the motions because of my parents and um, it was sort of that moment that really solidified that there was no God behind the Jehovah's Witness organisation. And they aren't, that they say that they're there to shepherd and, and to love and, and protect. And it was then it was like, this is a lie. And my, my whole life has been a lie. And I have now just been let down by two people that I very much loved wholeheartedly. And obviously now I have so much anger and pain directed to me, the organisation, but especially specifically to those two for not having a backbone and just letting them say, you know, um, I think they felt relieved that anything they had to deal with, they had to phone Bethel first. So I think in a way it's like they they can clear, clear their conscience because it hasn't come from them. They've just followed like sheep, the instructions that have come from Bethel. Bethel's like the upper branch 
Yeah, so it's where all like the um, publications and things are printed. So they have a Bethel in um, Chelmsford. Um, so yeah, that'll be, you know, people can work there. And I mean, if you ever speak to, I don't really have interviewed any Bethelites, but that'll be, um, there's a lot of interesting things about how they have to live at Bethel that's very culty. Wow, yeah, extreme. How how did your mum, I mean, it must have been just devastating for her to realise what this man that she had inadvertently brought into the home had done to you. Yeah, mum mom still struggles till today with the guilt of not knowing and that I felt that I couldn't tell her. Um, the first thing she said was that she believed me um, and then she went and, and confronted him which is when he denied it. And then in the morning she'd asked him again and then he admitted that he did. And, and mom was just like, get out, get out of my house. Um, she still remains a Jehovah's Witness to this day, but she does say that she knows it wasn't handled correctly and she's had arguments with the elders and she was going back and forth between me and them being like, why aren't you doing this? And why did you say this? And they'll sort of placate her with, whatever excuse and then she would come back to me and I'd have to say no that's wrong because the police have said this and she was sort of back and forth and in the end she's sort of she's like I'm in this organization for God not for man and I know it was handled wrong but the only thing that she says she can do is pray that Jehovah will put everything right in the end and that's what she hopes for um, so, so mum has been a, a very big support and still again continues to be um but she still unfortunately remains within the organisation. I guess she needs that in a sense and sort of that God redemption stuff. But amazing that she did, you know, believe you right away and kicked him out because there are so many stories like this where the mum or the dad just don't believe the child and it's just, yeah. the, the, imagine that on top of everything else and you're not believed. So that must have felt like a sort of, uh, just a huge wave of support from your mum when you told her. Yeah, I mean, it's something I didn't really expect to consider about whether anyone would believe me because, you, well, you just don't. It's something if it's happened, you don't expect to have to, to fight to to make people believe that it happened. Um, but it was it was very reassuring and nice to hear it because I was like, oh, like, God, yeah, people might not believe me. And But it, it was then really nice to know that your own mother's like, okay, I believe you and I'm going to go and sort it out. Absolutely. And then so what happens, you know, did you then go to the police? What happens to Cliff in the end? So my sister, um, my oldest sister, she was the one that really gunned um, sort of getting Cliff. And again, she was like, through, throughout 2019, she, she was like my hero because I wasn't really able emotionally to, to cope with everything that was going on with the police. Um, so she dealt with all the phone calls and dealt with the phone calls to the elders um, I didn't want to go to the police, actually. When she brought it up, she said, I think we need to report into the police. And I was sort of 10 years of living in the same house with him after the more sort of um, graphic stuff had happened. And I just, I used to convince myself whatever, how everybody else saw him. So everybody I would meet and it would be like, oh yeah, Clifford, isn't he wonderful? And yeah, he's amazing and I love him. So I had this very complex fucked up relationship with him and I was like just just let him go like let him just live his life and I'll live mine like just just leave it now I don't I don't want it to go on and then my uh Kerry was like okay what if I report it and that's that better with me and I was like yeah if, if it comes from you I'm happy to go ahead with it so then she did and that's how the the case sort of kicked off 
Um, so I, she was the one I told actually her and her husband, I, I spoke out to them about what had happened. And that was sort of the end of February, 2019. And, and by March, Cliff had been arrested <laughs> um, and taken in. He got released on bail and he gave no comment interviews throughout all of it. And um, then we had very little evidence because we couldn't get the confession. So then between sort of seven months after speaking out, we didn't really have much to go on. And because it's a historic case of child abuse, it was more difficult anyway. So the one key piece of evidence that we needed was this confession. And because they wouldn't hand it over, I had to do sort of video interviews that were very much, you know, the first one was bad enough because it was the first time I, I spoke about all the, all the, everything that had happened. And um, I had to do a second one because they were running on, they, they didn't have anything to go by and they needed to confirm details of what hand did he use? How many fingers did he use? Oh what God. boob did he grab? And all these things I had to go through because of the organisation. I wouldn't have had to have answered any of those questions if we just had the one piece of evidence you need to convict a paedophile. Why would you not want to give over evidence and convict a child abuser? And then, and then eventually... Um, I think they, the, the way it went, they denied having a document and the police said, okay, sign a statement saying that there is not a document with a confession on. And they, they were like, okay, no, actually there is a document. And around this time, I'd also requested my GDPR information. Um, and on my, so it was, um, I think a a couple years before they made you sign something about data protection so they could keep, records of you um sort of you know name address um the date you got baptized those sorts of those sorts of things uh, but what comes under that is obviously if my name's been brought up in any sort of meeting which it was with him so on the report i mean i have the report in the cupboard i'm keeping it because you never know when it's going to come in use um but it said hearing to a confession of child abuse and I mean, Cliff only admitted to one time. So it was one act of digital penetration when I was around 11 years old. And and then we had it. We had the key piece of evidence. And then Cliff got um, nine years publicly in prison um, and an additional year from the judge because he said you're a danger to society. So he got 10 years in prison. Too bloody right. It should be longer. Did that feel anything to you at that knowing that? I mean, initially, I didn't feel anything for a few days after, but the only thing I can say is that some rapists don't even get that long. And I think for 10 years of silence, 10 years of his life, I mean, I, I know the justice system doesn't always feel like you get much justice for something like as severe as, as that, but 10 years for 10 years of silence, I thought was pretty damn good given it was a historic case. In that sense, that's absolutely right. Lacey, is there somewhere you'd like to send people, website or anything like that? I have an Instagram account um, called Kingdom Trauma and I sort of went through a phase to help my deconstruction of of, um, of my beliefs and, and religious trauma. And I, it, the page started out as sort of little illustrations, little cartoons, um, which a lot of XJ dubs relate to. 
Um, and then it sort of progressed into like, you know, loads of other things. But yeah, I do have this page and I always say that, you know, a lot of people message me and sh just to share their experience or they say they don't feel ready to speak out yet. And it, it, it just want, you know, it's a safe space for people or those that are in and aren't quite sure and you know having some doubts and or people that even don't have doubts that should have a look because you might have doubts if you have a look. <laughs> Thank you, Lacey Jones. You were an absolute star in telling that story. And like I say, I really, really hope that it will help a lot of people dealing with similar issues or people who are thinking about leaving, whether it be the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Hasidic Jews, Scientology, Nixium, and a lot of the other stories and, and cults and religions and communities that I've covered on this podcast. Make sure to follow Lacey on Kingdom Trauma on Instagram. Get in touch and tell her how inspirational her story was to you. Lots of big episodes coming out. See you soon.